Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I am your host. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. I really appreciate you listening to the podcast today, Understanding Christianity. You know, a lot of times we talk about the doctrine of election and predestination, and sometimes when we think about these doctrines, we can focus so much on the theological intricacies and the debates and the differing views, um, Arminianism versus Calvinism versus traditional Southern Baptist, and get into the fray of talking about the different um, views of the doctrine of election that sometimes we don't actually understand the practical implications of what the doctrine of election should produce in our hearts and lives as believers in Jesus Christ. And so obviously from this podcast and from my theology, we're coming from the Reformed perspective of unconditional election. And so that's the, the, the view that we hold to. But what I want to do in this podcast is I want us to think deeply about how does the doctrine of unconditional election, what does it produce in our hearts, in our souls, as far as a response to God, what type of fruit comes from the doctrine of unconditional election. So what does it produce in God's people? Now, there's a lot of misunderstandings about the doctrine of election. You know, some people might say, well, you know, election basically is a free ticket to live however you want, because once saved, always saved. God has saved you, God has elected you, God has chosen you, you're guaranteed to go to heaven, so you can pretty much live however you want without any regard to God's law, without any regards to holiness, because after all, you're elected unto salvation, and you're secure in God's hands, so therefore, it doesn't really matter how you live. That's called antinomianism, that is a a falsehood. Some people might say, well, the reason, the grounding or the foundation why God chose me is because he foresaw the conditions that I would meet, that he set, namely repentance and faith. When God looked down the corridors of time and eternity passed, he saw me using my free will to choose Jesus. And based upon what God saw, he then in turn chose me because I met those conditions. This is the traditional Arminian view of conditional election. Some people might say, you know what? The doctrine of election and predestination is such a deeply theological topic, you really should never talk about it in church. Leave that to seminary, leave that to the theologians, but when it comes down to the person in the pew, they can't handle the truth, as as Jack Nicholson would say on uh, A Few Good Men, the movie, back in the early 90s. Uh, People can't handle the, the deep truths of the doctrine of election, so don't even talk about it. Or maybe somebody might say, you know what, election is a deep theological topic, but at the end of the day, it really has no bearing or application to my life. It's it's an interesting doctrine to talk about, to argue about, but as far as the practical implications in my personal life, I really don't see what's the point. So I want to answer the question, what does the doctrine of unconditional election produce in God's chosen people? And I think the canons of Dort give a great answer to this. 
Now, obviously, the canons of Dort were a response to the remonstrance. The Arminian branch of the Dutch Reformed Church that came out of the teaching of Jacob Arminius, they came up with the five points of Arminianism. In response to that, the Reformed Church in Holland met for a period of 18 months to almost two years, formulating what was called the, the Synod of Dort, and they, they came up with what are called the Canons of Dort. And, and what I want to do is, on the first main point of the doctrine of the Canons of Dort, their first main point is on the doctrine of divine election and reprobation. Um, article 1.12 and Article 1.13, I, I think, are actually 12 and 13 of, of Section 1, the assurance of election. And, and what I want to do on this podcast is I want to use that as a frame of reference And then I want us to share uh, five fruits or five responses or five um, truths that should be produced in our hearts and our souls as a result of the doctrine of unconditional election. So let's just listen to uh, the first main point of the doctrine, divine election and reprobation, uh, number 12 of the Canons of Dort under the assurance of election. So I'm quoting from the Canons of Dort here. Quote, assurance of their eternal and unchangeable election to salvation is given to the chosen in due time, though by various stages and in differing measure, such assurance comes not by inquisitive searching into the hidden and deep things of God, but by noticing within themselves with spiritual joy and holy delight the unmistakable fruits of election pointed out in God's word, such as, true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sin, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. So this answers the question about assurance of salvation. Now there's a difference between uh, the question, how does one get saved, or how are, are you saved? That's the question of how do you get into the gospel? How do you get into Christ? And we understand the scriptures are very clear on that. You repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But assurance of salvation is how do you know that you're truly saved? What gives you the assurance to know that you truly are a Christian? And the Reformed tradition ties it back to the doctrine of unconditional election. Now, you aren't assured of your salvation because somehow you're um, looking into the deep things of God to wonder if you're elect or you're not. Uh, the, the, The big issue is not, am I elect or not? Evidence that you are one of the elect is that you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ. So unconditional election means that you're elect unto salvation so before time and eternity passed god chose you to be saved but there comes a point in time where you actually hear the gospel you personally respond to the gospel you personally put your faith and trust in jesus christ alone for salvation and you are saved assurance of salvation is how do you um what do you look for in your life to, to know that you're saved? And so the um, canons of Dort here say that some of these things that we can look at are, do you have true faith in Christ? Have you repented and believed in Jesus? Do you have a childlike fear of God? Are you following Jesus and are you seeing God as your father? Um, when you sin, do you have a godly sorrow for sin? Are you repenting of that sin? Are you hungering and thirsting for, for righteousness? 
You see, what the canons of Dort here is saying is that assurance of salvation based upon unconditional election should, quote, produce within you spiritual joy and a holy delight. A spiritual joy and a holy delight in your salvation because God has chosen you. R.C. Sproul wrote this in the foreword to a book called Assured by God. He said, quote, The full assurance of salvation is not an extra benefit that accrues only to those believers who have striven mightily to reach a higher level of sanctification. Rather, assurance is a gracious gift of God provided for us in salvation and is to be secured early in our Christian lives. And that's an important point because assurance of salvation is not something that only the super spiritual who are doing all these great things for God, only they are, are, are truly saved. No, what R.C. Sproul saying, what the Canons of Dort are saying, what the Bible says is that you can know that you're saved based upon do you have faith in Christ? And it's tied back to unconditional election. So let's look at these five responses. And the first one comes from what I've just read to you in the Canons of Dort. And so here's the first response based upon unconditional election. You should have a solid assurance in your salvation. A solid assurance. Now, one of the classic passages of Scripture that talks about unconditional election is Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And I want to read this in part. This is actually in the Greek text, one long sentence. It's probably the longest sentence in the entire New Testament. It's as if Paul uh, didn't quite understand semicolons or periods. They just kept going on and on. But obviously, this is inspired of the Holy Spirit. It is um, God-breathed Scripture. And so what we see in this beautiful passage of Scripture is a Trinitarian understanding of how God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, have masterfully and wonderfully secured our salvation from first to last. And so Paul starts with God the Father in eternity past, then he moves to Jesus the Son at a point in time when Christ died on the cross, and then he moves to the Holy Spirit as as far as our, our personal experience of that salvation. So let's look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's blessed us in the beloved. This focuses on the role of God the Father in our salvation, in that God the Father sovereignly chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be his children. He did all of this according to the good purpose of his will. This is an unconditional election because there was nothing in this passage of scripture that tells us that we had to do anything or that we met any conditions or that somehow we were worthy to be saved. No, God in his sovereign will and purpose and great love 
for the elect people chose in eternity past to do everything necessary to bring us to salvation. And it started in eternity past when he chose us and when he predestined us to be sons, to be adopted into his family, to have that security to know that what God started in eternity past, he will carry on to eternity future. And we are secure in the fact that God the Father has chosen us. But not only God the Father, Paul goes on in this passage of Scripture to talk about the role of Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and what Jesus has done to secure our salvation. So verse 7, in Him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, that's Jesus, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Jesus because of the covenant of redemption whereby he and the Father in eternity past agreed in covenant that Jesus would come and die for those to whom the Father had given him, came and died on the cross. And this passage of Scripture says we have redemption. We've been bought out of bondage to sin and Satan, and we have forgiveness through the blood of Christ. And these riches of God's grace have been lavished upon us. Look at the wording there. They've been lavished upon us. They've been graciously given to us. Jesus Christ is our blessed Savior who has bought us by his blood. And again, Paul reiterates the fact that we've been um, predestined according to God who works all things according to his counsel and that we have an inheritance. So not only has God the Father chosen you before time, to be predestined to be a child of God, never to be out of God's family. But Jesus came at a point in time to solidly secure your salvation on the cross where he redeemed you by his blood. He lavished grace upon you. You have forgiveness of sins. You have a home in heaven. You have an eternal inheritance. And so God the Father has secured your salvation and Jesus the Son has secured your salvation, which should produce within you a wonderful assurance that you're saved and will always be saved. But Paul rounds out the doctrine of the Trinity in our salvation by focusing on the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So in verse 13, in him, as Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So not only did God the Father choose us before time to be adopted into his family, not only did Jesus die for us and lavish us with grace and forgive us of all of our sins through his blood, and not only did God ordain that we would have an inheritance, but he has given us the Holy Spirit to come live inside of us as a down payment or as a deposit guaranteeing that one day we will, we will receive the fullness, the, f the fruition, the fullness of our salvation. So this should produce great assurance in the hearts of God's people. 
that the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and, and, and the Holy Spirit, have worked in unison miraculously and sovereignly and graciously to do everything necessary to bring you to salvation. And it started in eternity past before any of us were created, before the world was even created, because of God's great majesty and according to the purpose of His sovereign will. So the first thing that the doctrine of unconditional election should produce in you is a solid assurance of your salvation that God loves you God has chosen you Jesus has died for you the Holy Spirit lives in you God has saved you from first to last he will keep you to the very end because he started it in eternity past he will carry it on into eternity future the triune God has us in his grip now let's look at some more of these fruits or these responses that should come from the doctrine of unconditional election. And we move into um, number 13, the fruit of this assurance in the Canons of Dort. So let me again read from the Canons of Dort, and then we'll look at the next four issues related to how we should respond to the doctrine of unconditional election. So let me quote from Canons of Dort here again. Quote, In their awareness and assurance of this election... God's children daily find greater cause to humble themselves before God, to adore the fathomless depth of God's mercies, to cleanse themselves, and to give fervent love in return to the one who first so greatly loved them. This is far from saying that this teaching concerning election and reflection upon it makes God's children lax in observing his commandments or carnally self-assured by God's just judgment this does usually happen to those who casually take for granted the grace of election or engage in idle and brazen talk about it but are unwilling to walk in the ways of the chosen so here we come to some practical outworkings of what the doctrine of unconditional election should produce within us. And it flows from the first thing that we looked at, the assurance of salvation. So if you are assured of your salvation because God chose you, then how should you live? How should this impact your worship? What should this produce in your life on a daily basis? So let's look at four other fruits or responses that we can have from unconditional election. So let's look at number two. The doctrine of unconditional election should give you a reason for daily humility. The Canons of Dort says God's children daily find greater cause to humble themselves before God. Daily to humble yourself before God. Now, why does the doctrine of unconditional election produce humility? Because by the very nature of the election being unconditional, it means there was nothing in us that moved or obligated or motivated God to choose us. It wasn't because we met certain criteria. It wasn't because we had greater faith. It wasn't because we were more spiritually sensitive. We had greater faith in the person next to us, that we responded better, that somehow we mustered enough, up enough free will to, to choose God on our own. There was nothing in us at all except for 
deadness in sin and rebellion and depravity. So the very fact that God chose to elect us and save us is an act of sheer grace alone, and that should lead to daily humility. I've often prayed this in my personal time of praying to God. And I've thanked God. I said, God, I praise you that you chose me before the foundation of the world because you could have very easily passed me over as one of the reprobate and not chosen me and not had me receive the gospel and had me living in darkness for my entire life without ever having anybody come to me with salvation and I would die and go to hell and you would be absolutely just in that and had done me no wrong if you would have never chosen me. But I praise you and I thank you that you chose me because there was nothing in me that moved you to do that. It was simply the good pleasure of your will and that should lead us to daily humility to humble ourselves daily before God listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 through 31 for consider your calling brothers not many of you were wise according to worldly standards not many were powerful not many were of noble birth but God chose okay here's the election language the choosing language God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose, chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And here's the reason why, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul's very clear here. Why did God choose us? Why did God call us? There was nothing in us that moved God to do that. If there was a reason, then that would give us reason to boast. But the reason that God chose us unconditionally is so that no one might boast in the presence of the Lord. We are in Christ. God has done the work from first to last. God has sanctified us. God has sent Jesus to redeem us. We are in Christ because God has chosen us to be in Christ. And if we're going to boast about anything, if we're going to glory in anything, glory that God chose to save us, to choose us, when he was under no obligation to do so. It should lead us to humility. It should drive us to our knees to be so thankful for what God did. Paul reiterates this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So reason number two that flows from the doctrine of unconditional election is it's a daily opportunity to humble ourselves before God, to, to, to drive us to our knees, to be so thankful in humility that God would dare choose us that God would save us. He was under no obligation to do so. He did not ha have his hands tied or we didn't force his hands and somehow he was manipulated into doing it. God did it because he wanted to do it as an act of love for his people. Let's look at reason number three. What's reason number three that comes as a result of the doctrine of unconditional election? Well, number three, it's a reason to love the depths of God's mercy. The canons of Dort said to adore 
the fathomless depths of God's mercies, to, to adore the fathomless depths. So fathomless depths means that we can't even tap the very surface of God's mercies. They, they are so deep. They are so rich. They are so powerful that we can't even begin to understand God's mercies. But as we think about God's mercies, we are to love God because of those fathomless depths of mercies. It's tied to humility, but it's also thankfulness for the fathomless depths of God's mercies. And I think about, when you think about the word mercies, it, it's what God um, gives us that we um, don't deserve. We deserve wrath. We deserve hell. We deserve punishment and justice. But instead of giving that to us, which we justly have earned, God chooses instead to show us mercy on account of Christ. I can think of no greater place to, to think about these depths of God's un, you know, fathomless mercy is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now in the work of sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul paints a pretty graphic picture here of, of lostness, that we were spiritually dead, we walked according to the course of this world, we were enslaved to Satan, we were bound by the, the, the lust of our flesh, and then ultimately we were children of wrath. And, and he makes a universal statement like the rest of mankind. But then verse 4, but God, listen to the language that Paul uses here, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus look at verse 7 so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice the language that Paul uses. He takes this contrast. You were spiritually dead. You were lost. You were enslaved to Satan. You were enslaved to your flesh. You were a child of wrath. But God, in the richness of his mercy, in the immeasurable riches of his grace, in his kindness, he made you alive. God didn't have to make you alive. God was not under obligation to make you alive, but he did that as an act of sheer grace. And so, Paul here just piles upon superlative after superlative the immeasurable riches of God's grace. He's lavished us. We, we think about the, the lavish, extravagant way in which God has saved us. And so unconditional election drives us to ponder and to think and to be thankful and to worship God for the immeasurable, fathomless mercies that he's given to us. And then Paul ends that section with, were his workmanship created for good works, that we should walk in, in good works, which leads us to number four. What's the fourth reason or the fourth response or the fourth fruit 
of the doctrine of unconditional election? Well, here's number four. It is a motivation to live holy and unpolluted lives. The Canons of Dort says to cleanse themselves. You know, earlier I talked about some people make the excuse that the doctrine of election allows you to live however you want. That is absolutely false because I want to go back and show you what we read earlier in Ephesians 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Any doctrine of election that does not lead to holiness of living or unpolluted or unstained living is not a proper definition or proper understanding of the doctrine of election. Oftentimes in Paul's writings, he's going to use the doctrine of election as a motivation for us to walk like elect people. Paul never says, hey, because God chose you before the foundation of the world and Jesus saves you and you got the Holy Spirit living in you and God has guaranteed your salvation and you're sovereignly in his grip and God has done it from first to last, it doesn't really matter how you live. As a matter of fact, Paul does the opposite. Paul says, listen, because you are chosen, because you're elect, because God's predestined you, you need to walk like you truly are. Live a life that reflects what God has done for you. We see this in Colossians 3 verse 12. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So Paul lists these Christian virtues like forgiveness and patience and humility. But he says, the reason you can put these on, the reason that you can live in these is because you are God's chosen people. You are holy and beloved. You've been predestined to be holy and blameless before him. Because you've been predestined, because God has chosen you, because God has saved you, therefore live like it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8-11. But since we belong to the day... Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Paul says, listen, you've been predestined to obtain salvation. Your destiny is not wrath. You are not a reprobate that God has passed over who will spend eternity in hell experiencing his wrath. You are a saved child of God whom he chose before the foundation of the world. Therefore, be sober-minded, live a life of faith, be awake, encourage one another, build one another up, live holy lives. So the doctrine of unconditional election should motivate us to live holy lives, to cleanse ourselves, to to live in the purity of our calling, to live like the children that we have been predestined to become. We're predestined to be adopted children. We've been chosen to be holy and blameless. So therefore, live like the reality that God has done for you in sovereign election. Okay, let's look at number five, the fifth one. What's the fifth reason or the fifth fruit or the fifth response that comes from unconditional election? 
Well, to give fervent love back to God in return of his love for us. Uh, The Canons of Dort says to give fervent love in return to the one who first so greatly loved them. Fervent love. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then later on down in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. So this is the love response back to God. We didn't initiate this salvation. We didn't initiate this election. We weren't the ones that made the first move towards God. God chose us before the foundation of the world. God set his electing love upon us. God has done everything necessary to secure our salvation from first to last as an act of sheer love. And what the Canons of Dort says is fervently, passionately love God back because of how he first loved you. In other words, the doctrine of election should produce within you this deep desire to love God. What did Jesus say is the greatest commandment? In Matthew 22, 36-37, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's very interesting that Jesus focuses on love as the greatest commandment. Jesus, and this goes off obviously back to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, but it doesn't say, what's the greatest commandment? Well, you shall obey the Lord. You shall serve the Lord. You shall follow the Lord your God. Those things aren't wrong in and of themselves. We see those throughout the rest of the Bible, but it focuses on loving God, the, the heart of your entire life. Love God with the totality of who you are. And the only way you can truly ardently, fervently, passionately love God back is because he first loved you. So you really can't fulfill the greatest commandment in and of yourself. It's impossible to fulfill the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength until you realize that God first loved you God chose you. Jesus was sent to die for you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. God has chosen you unconditionally, not because you earned it or deserved it or had faith and repentance that God foresaw. It was simply an act of sheer grace that God loved you. So we think about these five issues that we talked about. So does your doctrine of election lead to joy or does it lead to intellectual coldness you know you can get into intellectual debates about the doctrine of election and the doctrine of election becomes a a hammer that you beat non-calvinists with so that you can win an argument and so the doctrine becomes just a cold intellectual truth that you hold to but the question is does it lead to joy in your heart Another question you might ask is, does your doctrine of election lead to humility or does it lead to theological arrogance? I've seen far too many Calvinists be theologically arrogant and prideful and they are the exact opposite of what the doctrines of grace are supposed to produce in the life of a, of a believer and that is humility. Are you humbled that God saved you? Do you, do you 
walk in humility towards others? Are you quick to be arrogant and to, to win theological battle, battles and to, to argue and to think that somehow you've arrived in your theology? Or do you humbly realize if it were not for the grace of God, I would be hellbound. I would be hopeless, helpless, and hellbound. And so I am so humbled that God would love me. Another question you may ask is, does your doctrine of election lead to holiness? Or does it lead you to have an excuse to live however you want? Once saved, always saved. God's done it, so I can live however I want. Does your doctrine of election lead to holiness? You've been chosen to be holy and blameless before Him. And then does your doctrine of election produce solid assurance of your salvation? Or do you live in the doubt of God's love, always wondering if you're elect? You know, I, I, I preached on the doctrine of election, I think it was about a year ago, and a lady came up to me after the church, one of our members, and said, um, I've just always struggled with it. I, I believe the doctrine of election, but how do I know I'm one of the elect? And I said to her, the way you know you're one of the elect is, are you trusting in Jesus? Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in Christ alone for salvation? And she began weeping and said, yes, I have. She goes, that clears up so much for me because all this time I thought, I wondered if I was elect and I just needed to hear the fact that it's the evidence that I'm elect is that I have faith in Jesus. So the doctrine of election should produce assurance of your salvation, not doubt. I want you to hear an interesting passage of Scripture from the Old Testament that I think is pertinent to us who are God's children. It's from Zephaniah 3.17. It paints a wonderful picture of how the, the Father, God the Father, tenderly accepts us and loves us. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now this is a promise the Lord made to the nation of Israel during a time of intense rebellion and military oppression. And what this passage portrays is God as the mighty one in their midst God's a mighty warrior who will vanquish all of their enemies. And so poetically, this verse gives three ways in which God shows his fatherly compassion to his people. It's interesting. God will rejoice over you, number one. Number two, he will quiet you with his love. And number three, he will sing over you. One commentator makes this statement. He, um, Barker, in the, the Broadman commentary, the New American commentary from Broadman and Holman, says this, to consider Almighty God sinking in contemplations of love over a once wretched human being can hardly be absorbed by the human mind. Think about that for a moment. Can you truly fathom how the creator of the universe rejoices over you as his child? And do you find bedrock assurance in the truth that our Father will quiet you by his love? The Hebrew word there is interesting for quiet. 
you know, the Hebrew language is a little bit elastic. It, it's a little bit more word picture than the Greek. That word can also mean renew. God will renew your strength by granting you the peace that passes over or passes understanding. And then it says God will exult over you with singing. This may be the only verse in the Bible where God himself is said to actually sing. And the way it's worded in the original language is that he burst into joyous singing over his children. It's amazing. O o Palmer Robertson, um, another commentator, says this about this passage of Scripture. He says, quote, this verse is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. The love of God for his own people is not a soft, sentimental emotion that has no strength to act on behalf of its objects. That Almighty God should derive delight from his own creation is significant in itself. But that the Holy One should experience ecstasy over the sinner is in comprehensible you know one commentator old palmer robertson says it's incomprehensible another commentator says it it cannot be absorbed by the human mind ponder the inscrutable unsearchable unfathomable reality that the eternal creator of the universe sustains this depth of love for wretched sinners like you and me. And he was under no obligation to do so. He did it because of his infinite love. And so the doctrine of unconditional election is not a cold, distant doctrine that we talk about and we banter about, but it has lasting, permanent, deep roots that go into our heart and soul that produce these fruits of assurance and fruits of holy living and fruits of humility and fruits of of walking in, in, in holiness and thankfulness and fruits of loving God passionately because he first loved us. So I hope that you rest solidly assured in God's unconditional election of you. Well, I thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity today. It's always a pleasure to do this podcast, and I pray it's a blessing to you. Um, I hope you benefit from this and would share this with those that you think would benefit. Um, If you would go on iTunes and give us a positive review and rating, that would be awesome. If you want to get more information, you can go to seancole.net. It's the Understanding Christianity website where you can find my contact information and there's other resources there as well. Uh, You can go to the Understanding Christianity Facebook page or you can go to my personal Facebook page. Um, A lot of those times those things are linked together. uh, But we just hope that we're a blessing to you. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. May you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.